thank you for inviting me to come along to uh, present to you uh, on aspects of my research and more particularly um, research that I've been doing in the last few years with Dr Lockie Patterson uh, at Tatumu, which is the School of Māori, uh, Pacific and Indigenous Studies at the University of Otago. Um, he is a Māori language historian, um, I am not, and we've worked together more recently to kind of illuminate some of the kind of hidden stories that you kind of mentioned in the introduction for me, uh, Lynette. So I'm going to talk a little bit about that today. Um, but also, but thank you also for allowing me to be here to participate in your public programs to celebrate 125 years of uh, women's suffrage in New Zealand. I'm not talking about the women's suffrage petition today, but I am talking about petitions um, and their importance and their significance in New Zealand's history, in particular for Māori women in the late 19th century. Um, so I'm going to do my best to uh, give you a kind of world tour, a whirlwind tour of petitions in about half an hour, 35 minutes or so. So keep an eye on the time for me, Lynette. So, uh, so petitions play an extremely powerful role in the history of citizenship, and particularly so uh, in this country. They have been an important catalyst for significant political reform, uh, notably suffrage here in 1893. And that same year, a New Zealand woman who won the right, right to vote, and that same year two women from Kaitahu community at Taumatu, which my family have connections to, um, addressed an appeal to their Minister of the House representatives, um, HK Tairoa and they were praying for relief. And so I'm interested in that petition in that moment of 1893. Uh, what, what was their experience compared to those women who signed the 1893 uh, petition? And the woman at Tomatu didn't sign the suffrage petition at all. I've been searching uh, for Tomatu uh, online, um, and unfortunately they're not there. But nonetheless, they're still engaged in a really important political act of uh, presenting an appeal uh, to their representative. So a petition um, is a form of writing, and it's a popular form of political participation. It's a right that's open to all citizens, and is typically utilised to bring public attention to an issue and to mobilise support for reform. Because it is a form of writing that is specifically directed to those in authority who have the power to affect material changes in the lives of individuals and collectivities, Petitions are relational. They draw on an established connection with the petitioned, and they call for the addressee to fulfil an obligation to investigate an injustice, to provide redress, and to relieve the suffering of the writer. Um, probably the best known petitionary actions are those who sought parliamentary political reform in New Zealand in the 19th century, but also uh, elsewhere. And they're not just something that's linked, of course, to the 19th century, but continue to be really important to us in the 20th century. These days we do it online um, rather than uh, like our, our suffragists uh, in 1893. Now, Māori women are known to have signed the suffrage petition, and it's well known that Māori women sought political reform within their own institutions arguing for the right to vote in Te Kotahitanga, um, actively organising and pressing for change through women's committees in that forum. They were politically active, had been for a long, long time, uh, not just within kind of mainstream Pākehā institutions, but within their own. Uh, Māori women were not unfamiliar with the power of petitionary appeals. Their communities had been addressing appeals to the British Crown, the Governor and their political representatives for decades. Such was the volume of petitionary actions, a dedicated government committee was established to review, investigate and make recommendations upon them in the early 1870s, and that's the committee I'm going to talk a little bit about today. Um, so I've written about these appeals 
in Hedua Wahini, uh, as I mentioned, co-written with Dr Lockie Patterson. Um, and this book focuses upon a wide range of Māori women's writings from the 19th century archives. They draw, it draws upon publicly accessible archival and manuscript collections, and it aims to produce a volume that prioritises Māori women's experiences in the 19th century through their own words, their speeches, their evidence and their testimonies, as Lynette uh, mentioned. So I'm going to be drawing on uh, this book uh, today uh, to talk about petitions. And the book itself is inspired by an awareness of the somewhat uneven and patchy scholarship on Māori women's history for the 19th century, uh, particularly for the decades prior to 1890. Uh, to me and to Lockie, this gap seemed particularly odd given the rich and excellent scholarship on 19th century Māori print culture and the huge amount of material that's available in te reo Māori and wonderful institutions like this, uh, which people like Lockie, who works on 19th century Māori language newspapers, um, has, has used extensively. Um, and more and more of this work is uh, being accessed and being made use of uh, by historians, a whole range of scholars, but communities themselves. Um, so this massive corpus of material, especially available here, um, made us wonder whether Māori women had anything to say in the 19th century, and they certainly did. Did they leave documentation attesting to their colonial experiences? Did they leave documentation that kind of um, attested to their engagement with the colonial state um, as well? Um, we're trying to respond to scholarship that suggests that there isn't a lot of material out there, that Māori women didn't necessarily leave a lot behind, but what we've found is a quite a wide array of material that is available. So in that book, Hiriwa Wahini, we found over 500 texts in both English and Te Reo Māori uh, that convey the range and diversity of women's concerns, the many ways in which they engage with the colonial institutions to protect their interests, as well as their understanding and use of the law, legal documents uh, and the court system. Women were keen participants in textual culture, writing letters to each other or to officials, uh, with a few engaging uh, with print culture, particularly newspapers. Uh, and they also made large numbers of petitionary appeals in the late 19th century. And as I mentioned earlier, these appeals were sent to the Native Affairs Committee, made up of the four uh, Māori MPs uh, in Parliament at the time. So the sheer number of petitions directed to that committee marks it as a significant body and worthy of detailed examination. Um, and there's been some excellent work by um, Guy Finney, who did a law degree here at Victoria, who looked at um, the final three decades of the 19th century and it kind of examined the number of petitions that were sent there. And he estimates that there were about 2,300 petitions that were sent uh, to the Native Affairs Committee. So this is a massive body um, of, of writing that's available and needs to be explored in greater detail. So these represent tens of thousands of signatures, uh, the majority from Māori and mostly relating to the subject of land. So I really want to emphasise that these petitions are a really important and significant body of Māori writing. And so I want to talk a little bit about that today. Petitions as writing, but petitions as kind of political acts um, as well. Uh, and before I do so, I just want to note that in other parts of the world, historians of empire and colonisation and indigenous rights have made extensive use of petitions in a way that New Zealand um, scholars haven't yet to do. In general, these scholars argue for petitions as a tool of protest or activism. There's been extensive studies of petitioning in the Spanish colonial world, where petitions are framed politically as a collective process of voicing a complaint. 
in Canada, uh, the petitions of the Coast Salish people of British Columbia uh, that were sent to the Canadian governments and to colonial governments between 1864 and 1874 have been uh, written about beautifully um, as protest texts uh, by a fantastic young scholar called Megan Harvey. And petitions have attracted a reasonable level of attention from Australian scholars too. Um, particularly so in a context where Aboriginal voices are often quite rare in colonial archives. So scholars have embraced petition, petitions as embodiments of Aboriginal aspiration um, and for their views of colonial power and authority in the mid-19th century. So in other parts of the world, petitions are being really drawn upon, particularly for kind of Indigenous history and trying to kind of gain access to those Indigenous perspectives on uh, the colonial past. Uh, and Māori petitioning too is generally characterised as a form of political protest. Even while acknowledging the limits of the Native Affairs Committee as an effective form of advancing change and reform, uh, legal scholar Māori Stevens nevertheless argues the committee offered a forum uh, for Māori protest in the late 19th century. So who were our petitioners? In those last three decades of the 19th century, the House of Representatives referred the petitions of about 145 Māori women to the Native Affairs Committee. Between them, these 145 women sent 217 petitions. Um, and of that, 2,300 in total, that represents just over 9%, which I still think is relatively significant. And that doesn't include petitions that are, are, are collective um, at all. Well, when we were looking at um, the the Native Affairs Committee, we were limiting ourselves to petitions sent largely by women or led by women. Um, they might be by a single woman or by two or three. Um, so there are a whole, a whole bunch of collective petitions there that are available for exploration. Um, and one that we didn't use um, was this one uh, from Tairi. Um, this is a community down in the South Island in Otago. There was a native reserve on the northern banks of the river. This petition's from 1892, but you can see there are a number of women who've signed their name to it. But also note the kind of colonial language and the categories that are, that are being used to kind of describe themselves at a time when terrible terms like half-caste were used quite often and had political purchase, particularly down in the South Island, because there were half-caste land claims going through um, government um, at the time. So there was a reason to kind of use that term. Um, so I think people use that quite deliberately, but there's other kind of colonial terms there as well. So there are a whole range of these kinds of petitions um, as well that we didn't explore uh, for the, the book. And there's so much more left to be done in terms of exploring the, this material. So women petitioned on a range of matters and did so as part of a collective, as you can see here sometimes as a lead signatory, but most petitions seeking redress for an injustice, either personally or on behalf of their family. And that's typical of the petitions received by the committee. These included requests for re-hearings um, before the Native Land Court, uh, payment disputes with the Crown, issues over succession, issues relating to surveys and boundaries, um, and land fraud too. Some sought reform of government policy that affected them personally, uh, but because the majority of petitions related to land, a large number sought to gain re redress or relief from decisions made by the Native Land Court or the Compensation Court uh, during this period, often without much success. 
uh, and a few wanted restrictions on land removed so that they could be financially independent and make decisions about that land so that they could kind of um, survive financially uh, in the 1890s. And there were a large number of women who applied uh, for restrictions to be removed um, through petitions. So appeals came from women across the socio-economic spectrum, ranging from the chiefly women, who were large landholders, through to widows, uh, the elderly and the impoverished. Um, and Māori women's petitioning peaked in the 1890s, um, and this fits with kind of arguments that have been made by Tanya Rei in her book Māori Women the Vote, where she notes that the late 1890s and uh, late 1880s and then the early 1890s are a particularly important period of political activity uh, for Māori women. This increased engagement with the state is partially explained by the participation in temperance and suffrage campaigns and organisations such as the Women's Christian Temperance Union, which Māori joined, as well as their own committees within the Kotahitanga movement. But it was also influenced by their lived experience. Women and their families felt the effects of land loss enacted through confiscation and the activities of the Native Land Court. And these were very important and significant catalysts for many individual women to petition uh, for redress, uh, particularly so in the late 19th century. So if you are keen to have a look at any of them, you can hang out on Papers Pass, which I'm sure you all know about, uh, and go and have a look at the A to J's, where you can find um, uh, a short form of these petitions having been reproduced um, in the AJHRs. And these are, look like this in short form. This is petition number 309, um, and they're bilingual, provided in English and then in a kind of, uh, te reo Māori below. So what you get here is just a summary of the petition, petition as presented and a decision of the committee. And unfortunately, these reports abridge the petitions and only refer to the supplicants in the third person. Um, you can go over to Archives New Zealand and find the original petition. This is number 309. That's the original petition. That's the summary. So in the original petition, um, you'll find a lot more kind of um, rich detail um, about uh, the appeal uh, and the basis of the appeal. And these petitions are accompanied by um, other correspondents, including letters from the petitioner, their family or supporters, uh, as well as government reports, memos, and other documentation that reveals the official response. So if you have anyone in your family who may have submitted a petition in the 19th century, you will hopefully be able to locate it um, over at Archives New Zealand. And what you can see from petitions is, as a piece of writing, they tend to adhere to a formal structure. They draw upon official vocabulary, deploying standard phrases and words, often being dif deferential in tone. And this probably reflects the fact that uh, many people used an intermediary to kind of write these petitions to help compose the text in the kind of correct format um, and increasingly relied on lawyers uh, who were familiar with the format and the formal language required uh, for submission of these. And petition number 309 follows the standard format in many respects. It adheres to um, a standard format and composition, beginning with an address to a higher authority, followed by a statement detailing the grievance and closing with a request for relief or prayer for assistance. Um, in this case, we've only got an English language version uh, of the original. Um, we haven't been able to locate the Te Reo, uh, te reo Māori one. 
The majority of petitions presented in the final three decades of the 19th century were submitted in Te Reo Māori. And one of the really important findings for us in terms of doing this book is how important uh, Te Reo Māori was um, as a language in the 19th century. It was the lingua franca, it was the normative language for Māori, and they wrote in this language as well right through the 19th century. Do you see a slight drop-off um, in the later 19th century as you get more of these kinds of forms getting submitted in English? So the majority of petitions were presented in Te Reo and they were translated by a government officer from the native department, often into the formal language of government. So this means petitions are products of both translation and interpretation. Because intermediaries were normally involved, they're translated from the oral into the textual, um, but also from the Māori language into the English language um, as well. While in format, style and rhetoric, petitions often followed European conventions, they also retain elements common to customary forms of virality too, such as metaphor and symbolism, particularly, especially so, the earlier ones. So translating texts from Te Reo Māori into English language, therefore, was also an act of interpretation. And these interpretations um, were often expressed in the formal, standardised language of government, and thus often stripped the original petition of its emotional power um, and significance. Um, and this is something that Lockie knows a great deal about um, and has uh, written about um, in the book uh, in terms of thinking about kind of translation and interpretation. It's kind of two really significant and important processes that as historians working with kind of other language sources like Te Reo Māori, we need to think about uh, um, in a lot more depth and detail in terms of the way in which uh, English documents like this kind of get uh, produced. So you might not be able to read this very well, um, so I'm just going to give you um, an example. Uh, take, for instance, Ripeka's 1884 petition uh, concerning her land near Tauranga, which she was claimed was sold without her consent. Uh, there are slight differences in meaning uh, when the petition is translated into official language. Uh, every time she notes the petition having been sent, she lists them, as you can see on the left. In the English language version, it folds it into just one sentence and kind of hides the kind of significance um, of her persistence um, and her um, intent uh, to continually petition about her land. Uh, Ripeka also asks that her requests um, be sorted out by the government, but the English translation does something else. It softens that kind of direct language as well. Um, so removing her direct language and underplaying the kind of urgency of her appeal and not to mention her emphasis on government obligation and responsibility too. So in moments where there were competing languages and differential levels of expertise and literacies, this gap in comprehension or translation could be exploited by those who knew how to use it. Um, petitions too are often seen as a kind of formulaic style of writing, uh, which over time took on an increasingly bureaucratic nature kind of form-filling exercise to a degree. But this does not mean uh, that the content of petitionary appeals are unimportant or generic in any shape or form. And I think because of this, forms do not get the same attention as more active writing styles and genres, uh, such as letters and manuscripts. But forms like this, even if they are bureaucratic, are significant and important. The deferential tone lends the petition a kind of passive character Yet Ripeka's example demonstrates that the petition was an active form of writing. 
It required the petitioner to locate a scribe or intermediary to translate their claim into the appropriate language, and most significantly to actively and tireless, tirelessly campaign to keep the claim alive, often for decades. Um, and Ripeka herself did not give up, putting into action a statement from her 1882 petition that only her death would stop her from petitioning. Um, her file starts in 1877 and it ends in 1899, and she petitioned just about every single year. Uh, she died in 1905. She's um, an absolutely kind of amazing uh, woman, uh, someone who persisted um, and was politically active. So as a body of writing, the petition might be formulaic, but the messages they contain are not. While they all share a common focus on land loss, they also demonstrate the variety of ways in which Māori women sought to challenge the state and the specific strategies they used to articulate their feelings. These strategies include the use of scribes, as I've mentioned, persistent and regular petitioning, as in the case of Ripika, and a willingness to address their claims to a variety of forums in writing, of which the petition was just one example. So, as I mentioned before, it wasn't uncommon for um, women or Māori communities to use scribes or intermediaries. Uh, Bradford Harmies talked about this in the context of the Native Land Court. Um, we see this happening with petitions as well. There are interpreters, lawyers, legal agents, Māori and Pākehā who are involved in this process. Um, there are many examples that we look at uh, in the book where it's daughters who are doing it for their mothers who are acting as the intermediary and, and, and the scribe. Um, and there's also lots of examples of collaboration within communities um, and amongst families to work towards kind of submitting uh, a petitionary appeal. So petitions are the products of several hands um, and many voices, we argue. Uh, and senior women uh, in particular um, were very, very important in kind of leading uh, these collective petitions, um, even if they were just small groups, they were nonetheless very significant. And another thing to note about petitions too, and looking at the wider archive, is that appeals did not always follow the format of a petition, many preferring to make their request in letters, which had long been the most popular genre of writing um, amongst Māori. This is the one uh, from Tomatu. I'm sorry that you probably can't see the writing. Uh, letters had the advantage of operating at a more personal level, being almost as good as a private interview. The Native Minister received letters on a regular basis containing appeals for assistance and gaining redress or relief on a wide range of topics. Letter writing campaigns supplemented petitioning with the goal of keeping the issue alive in the mind of the officials. This is important for, as the numbers indicate, 145 women, 217 petitions, women petitioned repeatedly and cases did drag on for decades, so you did have to be persistent like Lipeka. Um, and that was the case with uh, the woman from Tomatu. Their appeal started with a letter, which then became a petition, and then followed up with yet another letter, and then another petition, and on it went. So many Naitahu communities, like those at Tomatu, pursued their own local claims. In the context of uh, Te Kiremi, uh, the, the, um, the Naitahu land claim, um, so in 1893, uh, Pipi Kururua uh, wrote to HK Tauroa, their parliamentary representative of the South Island Māori electorate, um, in relation to land at Waihora, or Lake Ellesmere. And this is very exciting for me, because my great-grandfather um, was raised by the Kauruarua family, and I know Taumatu really well. I've never seen any writing from anyone from that community at all. So when I saw this in the archive, jumped up and down with joy. I did literally jump up and down with joy um, at Archives New Zealand. 
um, because it's just uh, one of the great things about doing this book um, has been the ability to kind of find little stories and places that don't always get into the history books, and Taumatu is one of those places. It means a lot to me and to my family and the wider Afano, but it's not a, a place that necessarily kind of makes it into the history books, and often because of that, it's made invisible and it's not thought that there's anything um, available in an archive there to kind of support a kind of wider history, but this shows that um, there's plenty of material um, available. So Tairoa put in a request this is the uh, English translation, the official translation, um, and of that Taumatu letter, and that's the little church um, at Taumatu in 1899. I like to think that um, Pipi Kurawarua um, and uh, her collaborator, Rora, are part of that uh, image, who are standing there in front of the church. So Tauru put in um, the request, nothing happened, it got followed up with a petition uh, the following year, um, and then they further activated um, the appeal three years later because nothing had been um, investigated. Um, so that constant persistence is a really important part um, of the story. And the case exemplifies how letter writing was often an important precursor to petitioning in which right claims, rights claims were made explicit. So my point here is that petitions were a part of a wider body of writing on matters of long-standing material importance to women and often one act of many in aiming to draw attention to an injustice. And we know that very well for the suffrage petition. The petition is just one act amongst many. It's the one that we remember the most because there's so many names and it's an amazing material object. But the same goes for uh, Māori women petitioning in the 19th century. And here's another case um, of a woman who made an appeal via a letter um, as well. And I put this one in for Miriama, who's kaitahu too, um, from 1891, because I want to make the point that letters are political pieces of writing too. So Miriama appealed for assistance in 1891, um, and the official translation leaves out a few things. For instance, it doesn't say that she's 78 years old, which her letter in Te Reo Māori does. Um, so she specifies her age, but it disappears completely in the English translation. Um, and her Te Reo Māori uh, letter often repeats um, her points. So emphasis is taken out in terms of the, the English translation as well. So rep repetition of phrases and words play an important role in petitionary appeals, uh, directing emphasis to the situation of the petitioner and the absolute need uh, for a response. Uh, so Miriam's letter, uh, for instance, speaks repeatedly of suffering, um, but this word does not appear in the official translation. Uh, and for the minister and the government to show aroha, or compassion for her, an elderly woman, she emphasises her age in her original letter as well, but all of that kind of disappears in the translation. So my point with this is that petitions, letters, are political acts. In phrasing and style, Miriam's letter looks very similar to a formal petition. In content, it's also political in nature, for she holds the government responsible for her landlessness and her poverty. Because letters are often interpreted as largely personal documents strongly associated with women, they have tended to be dis discounted as having political content. But letters are a form of political writing. They provide a space for the critique and political comment, as Miriam shows. 
Given that Māori women's petitions were supplemented or preceded by letters of complaint that contained long and detailed original narratives and rich detail about their situation, their petition should be considered within the context of a longer tradition of written pr protest and critique um, of the state. The thing with petitions is that they were often the last recourse. Uh, if letters didn't work, if other kinds of writing didn't work, then petitioning was often the kind of last recourse available to someone to overturn an injustice or to lay in a complaint or an appeal at the feet of the government. And in many cases, if you go and buy Hiru Wahine and have a look at the book, you'll see uh, that many um, women um, pursue their cases for decades and decades. Um, people like Ripeka and many others um, had to be persistent in order to kind of get any kind of um, response. Sometimes they got no response at all, which required persistence, and sometimes they were, they were successful, um, but often that wasn't necessarily the case. Petitioning relies on a public sphere willing to listen, investigate, and act upon prayers or protests. Uh, so petitioners had to campaign for decades to gain redress. So while petitions are regarded as potentially exciting sources for gaining access to indigenous perspectives and responses to colonisation, this has to be balanced alongside the official response to them. The state could ignore their protest and dismiss the recommendations of the Native Affairs Committee, meaning it was up to the petitioner to keep the issue alive. How are we going for time? So many women um, constantly contested. Um, they submitted petitions on a regular basis. And one of the kind of key things that they were contesting were confiscation uh, of lands. Um, this is one of the kind of large body of uh, subjects that makes up many of the petitions that are getting submitted uh, in the 1880s and 1890s. Um, and they uh, are a significant body of writing that are available for further research. So what do all these sources reveal about Māori women's lives? Um, well, they speak to the centrality of land uh, in Māori life and its loss. Um, many emphasise that women had land rights. Many say, I am a woman who is writing this, um, emphasising their gender, and that they had the ability to own land, direct its future and to control it, and therefore there should be a response uh, in kind. Māori women's petitioner appeals address the material circumstances of their living conditions. For those at the wealthier end of the spectrum, this amounted to protecting land interests and retaining those for the community. But for those at the other extreme, who were in poor health, elderly and frail, or widows, they petitioned because they needed to survive. Most of the petitions received, though, were from women in between uh, these two ends of the spectrum. Those with small land interests who sought to regain land lost through a range of mechanisms uh, and critique those institutions in the process of their appeal. Petitions point to the practice and impact of land loss, uh, particularly by the 1890s. By then, petitioners were seeking relief from landlessness and poverty on a far more regular basis than they were, say, in the 1870s or early 1880s. Um, increasingly, petitions addressed exclusions from lists of owners set out by the Native Land Court, and petitions really show the impact of the court by the late 19th century. And others sought redress from the impact of inaccurate surveys. 
Some wanted access to fishing reserves, and others protested against the passage of legislation that was appearing that may have a material effect on their lives. By looking closely at women's petitionary actions, what we see is a much wider corpus of writing genres over many decades in which the petition kind of sits within. It's part of a longer tradition of protest or writing um, in which women were active from the 1850s. They are testaments to Māori women's activism, women who actively sought to put their claims in writing for posterity, uh, for they understood that petitions offered a way of raising the profile of an issue uh, making sure that that issue stayed at the forefront of people's minds and the hope that there might be a response uh, as well. And what we also see with these petitions is the impact of colonialism and colonisation within communities as well, because each petition specifies that in great detail uh, from the perspective, words and testimonies of those communities themselves. Um, so I really think they are absolutely essential and important body of Māori political activism uh, that deserve far greater attention and I hope that you will go and have a look at them if you possibly can because they are beautiful pieces of writing um, full of wonderful, rich, um, interesting details um, that speak to the significance of political activity and activism in 19th century Māori life. Thank you. Okay, any questions from the floor? Just wonder if the Waitangi Tribunal has drawn on the petitions in, in any of their work. I'm sure they have. I'm sure they've drawn on them extensively, yeah. Um, I think there's, um, lots of historians have drawn on the petitions, but um, maybe not necessarily looked at them for the reasons that we have, essentially, because I'm interested in them as a kind of body of writing, um, which there is kind of a huge amount available to kind of explore uh, Māori testimony to uh, the colonial experience, but I know that the Waitangi Tribunal has probably more than likely made use of them, and other historians have um, as well. Um, but what I was surprised by in doing this work and reading kind of Guy Finney's uh, um, research on this is just how large a body of writing there is available, and that committee continues into the 20th century, so there's so much more work uh, to be done and with using some of this material and exploring maybe some different stories. Yeah. Thank you very much. These stories really personalise the whole issue, if I might call it that. And it seems to me that naysayers about uh, land rights and land grabs would, surely might be a little bit touched by these letters, hopefully. Do you have any idea of the percentage success rate, you know? With with, the, with these these um, heartfelt pleas that were made. Um, well, I know that quite a few weren't successful because we can tell that with the kind of level of persistence in which women are kind of uh, petitioning. Um, some succeed in getting a kind of larger investigation uh, to, to take place, but not necessarily will that government investigation kind of. Um, reward them necessarily in any way. I mean, part of the problem around success for these women is that if a petition does go before the Native Affairs Committee, people will be called to give evidence. So if you are from a community, say, like Taumatu in Lake Ellesmere, how do you get to Wellington to be a testimony 
so and to speak to your appeal. So that really cuts down the opportunity for people to have any kind of level of success. They you know, need to rely on people like, at Tomatu, people like HK Tairo, who lives in that community and has responsibility uh, and duties there to kind of speak for them if, if they possibly can. But he's kind of limited in what he can do um, as well. So the level of success is minimal because of financial considerations, having to get to Wellington. Um, and then also the Native Affairs Committee will probably push these um, appeals on to others and make a recommendation for further investigation, but that might not necessarily come to pass because um, there's no political will there. So it requires on that, that public sphere to, to take an interest um, at the time. So there isn't necessarily the political will um, available. So there's quite a lot of limited success for some of these women. Uh, some do succeed because they can get to Wellington, they can kind of lay that personal heartfelt um, evidence and testimony before people and before a wider group. But in many of the cases, they take a really long time uh, to be to succeed and they require a huge amount of kind of energy, time, money um, and uh, persistence. They're kind of a, those important character um, um, aspects that you really need to kind of push these things through. Yeah, um, many people give up. Yeah. And I presume the makeup of the Native Affairs Committee was um, mainly men. Well, it was the four Māori MPs who would look upon these appeals kindly, but they had to kind of um, push them on for further investigation. If they recommend that they be looked at, um, it's, not, it's not up to them to make a decision. Um, they make a recommendation. So someone else makes that decision about whether or not an appeal will go towards a kind of greater investigation. Um, and if it's a land court issue, that comes under the purview of the court and there's nothing that can be done. So many of those appeals that come through in the later 19th century are about um, the land court, so there are limitations on, on what can be done in some of those respects. And so they might say that this is out of our um, purview. We, you know, we can't make any recommendation uh, because we have uh, no power or authority uh, in the context of the native land court, uh, for instance. Yeah. Hey, once again, thank you for your, for your, um, your presentation today. Uh, we learned quite a bit from that. And I'm not surprised at the tenacity and will of these uh, wahine <laughs> from, from back in the day. Uh, my queer was exactly the same. Um, <clears throat> but what I am uh, interested in is, is how much success has there been since, since mm. these letters uh, in, in terms of the claims for it. Yeah, well, I guess you have to see the, the letters and the petitions as part of that kind of broader body of Māori kind of protest in the 19th and 20th century, because many of this, much of this material gets rolled into uh, the Ngāi claim um, to Kirimi, um, which is, is successful in 1998, um, and the tribe is now doing really important work in, in ensuring that the claim itself has an impact on the material lives of people. So Tomatu, so when I was a kid, was pretty run down. Um, no one lived out there, but people have come back. Yeah, and people were living there, and there were people looking after the Urupa and the church uh, and the marae. Um, so it relied on a really small group of people before, 
but now you see a completely different kind of attitude, and I think that's something to do with um, the revival of Naitahu, both in terms of its kind of cultural significance in Christchurch and Canterbury, um, as a result of the claim, and as a result of all the work that people like these women did, um, but also their economic importance, and they're a powerhouse there as well. But it has a real importance, I think, on people's kind of um, psychology, their kind of their spiritual connection to place. Um, so I think you, you have seen in terms of Tomatu some real shifts. It's actually amazing um, at the moment. The number of kind of young people who are out there is really fantastic. So I think there are these positives that have come out of it. <laughs>